So I'm reading 1 Corinthians 7, 1 to 16. Now for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but, the, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Do not deprive each other except perhaps by mutual consent for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession not as a command. I wish that all of you were as I am, but each of you has your own gift from God. One this gift, and another has that. Now to the unmarried and the widows, I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I do. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married, I give this command, not I, but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband. But if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. As a husband must not divorce his wife, and a husband must not divorce his wife. To the rest I say this, I not the Lord. If any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. The brother or sister is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband's? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? So, Lord, I just thank you so much for your servant, Robin. I just pray that you would anoint him, Father, and that his words would just be full of your power and that we would just learn from you, God, today. I pray that our ears would be open to hear what the Spirit has to say and our hearts would be ready to receive your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. That's good. So, as I've mentioned before, I think I mentioned it last time I I spoke, um, I was already in my 30s and married with two kids, before I got around to um, finishing my undergrad degree, um, I did a degree in anthropology and linguistics in a department that was very strong on feminist approaches to that. And so I was one of like four or five guys in a class of like 35 or 40 women. Um, that's okay. <laughs> um, uh, and I remember having a conversation with one of my classmates, a woman in my class. I didn't know her very well. And a number of times in the conversation, I referred to my wife. 
And um, she got really angry at me uh, for using that term. And she says, ask, didn't, uh, ask me, didn't my wife have a name? Um, now, I just spent three years in a culture where the last thing a man does is refer to his wife by name. Actually, wives don't refer to their husbands by name either. It would be, generally speaking, uh, so-and-so's father. Or, you know, there's one, there, there, there's one person I only ever knew by the name Madari Palatine, Palatine's mother. That was her name. Um, and, uh, you know, you just didn't refer to people by their names. Um, but her issue was, uh, as, as she put it, when you say my wife... Um, it sounds like you own her, like she's your property. My response was, no, I don't own her, but we do belong to each other. She, I'm just as much her husband as she is my wife. <laughs> so, I mean, there are a lot of people, including that woman, I, I, I would think, who um, blame Christianity for putting women down. Uh, for husbands treating their wives like property, uh, I'm not going to try. I'm not going to try and say that doesn't happen because I know it does. Um, what I will say is that you can't support that kind of thing from Scripture. Far from it, in fact. And today's passage shows that the marriage marriage is supposed to be a relationship of mutual care, not a relationship of power. So before we get started, we need to decide whose voice it is we're hearing in the first verse of chapter 7. Now in the, the version, the, the New International, today's New International Version that uh, was read for us, the, it begins with these words. Now, the, for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. And you'll see there that their words are in quotation marks. And if you look at a bunch of other translations, um, particularly older translations, you'll find that they don't have the quotation marks. And the newer ones do. In fact, the original version of the NIV that was published in 1984, you go back and look at the 1984 version of the NIV, no quotation marks. You look at the current version of the NIV, quotation marks. Um, so one group of translators has Paul making this statement. And the other group of translators put it in quotation marks to show that they think that Paul here is quoting from the letter that the Corinthians sent him. And we'll see that as we go through Corinthians, that there'll be a statement which is clearly a quote from something in a letter that Paul has, has received, and he's responding to it. So, the question here is, is this Paul's voice or is this somebody else's voice and Paul responding to it? And most scholars today would agree that the second group is right, that Paul is responding. He's working his way down a list of topics uh, in the, 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 book, the letter to the Corinthians. And he begins each topic, well, many of the topics, by quoting what the Corinthians themselves have said. So... A few weeks ago, when I was talking about sex again, uh, <laughs> I get all the good topics. Uh, I said that one of the problems that the Corinthians had was trying to figure out how their new faith in Christ 
impacted their view of what it meant to be human. Because um, most Greeks thought of the body as either irrelevant or evil. Um, either way, it wasn't really necessary to living out your faith. It was your soul that was important, not your body. So it's quite possible that just as some people in Corinth were suggesting that it was okay to continue to sleep around as Christians, and we met those people in chapter 6, um, there were others that were saying that in order to be truly spiritual, you have to deny all bodily pleasures, including sex. And that's, that's, those are actually common extremes with people who take an over-spiritualized view of life. They either say, well, the body is evil, and therefore you have to shun everything to do with the body, or the body is irrelevant. It doesn't really matter what you do. Those, those two extremes are very common with people who over-spiritualize life. And what Paul is trying to do here is steer a middle course between those two extremes. Now, unfortunately, for well over a thousand years, um, people have actually taken that first sentence to be Paul's position rather than his opponent's. So we ended up with the church also having a negative view of the human body um, and sex and seeing it as unclean um, and believing that it was better to be, um, to be single. And so you have uh, celibate orders, people becoming monks. If people wanted to be really religious, they would become monks or nuns and they'd um, embrace celibacy as a way to be more spiritual. Ironically, that's the very thing Paul was trying to avoid in this passage. So talking about getting the wrong end of the stick. Um, Paul says clearly that it's no more spiritual to be single or married. They're different, but they're, they're just different callings. They're, they're, they're not necessarily one better than the other. So we're going to try and figure out um, what he really meant by looking at what he actually said. There's an idea. Uh, so he starts off by quoting what the Corinthians had written to him. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations. Now, one of the reasons it's really hard to believe that this is Paul's position is because it's so contrary to the Bible's view of sex. After all, Genesis tells us that God created humanity, man and woman, and intended them to be together. And it's really hard to see how a blanket statement like men and women shouldn't have sex would fit in with a statement that everything God made was good. Not to mention the command to be fruitful and multiply. That would be really hard. So, so Paul responds with a biblical view of where sex belongs. He says, but since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. So the best solution to sexual immorality is not to just say no, nor is it to go get a room. It is to go get married. Um, seriously, I mean, that's, that's a biblical response. <laughs> so sex isn't something to be spread out all over the place. It's to be limited within the bounds of marriage. And the only safe place for sexual relations is an exclusive marriage relationship between a man and a woman. 
That would be a radically new idea for the people in Corinth. We, may not, we, we always think that we're the, the, you know, the, you know, the, the worst societies. We're the most sexually, you know, was it liberated, whatever the word is. But that would be really an unusual thought, right? Because for those who thought that the body was a hindrance to spirituality, it would have been shocking to them to think that their sexuality was part of the way that God made them. And for those who were used to just sleeping around, the idea that being limited to just their wife would certainly be quite novel. You know, we sometimes forget that the call to follow Jesus often brings, brings with it a challenge to live in ways that we may not even have considered before. Not just our sexuality, that applies to um, all kinds of things, our, our, our money, what we, do with our, what we do with our spare time, what kind of, um, what kind of uh, vocation we pursue, all of that stuff. And in many places in the world today, the idea that the only safe for sex is within a marriage between a man and a woman is often te- treated with scorn and contempt. The media is constantly screaming, particularly our kids, that it is normal to be sexually active at a young age, to have multiple partners before you're married, even to have multiple partners while, uh, you know, while you're married. So for those of you who are parents, the only place that your kids are going to get a healthy sexual ethic is from you. The messages they get from elsewhere are going to be less than helpful. Now on that topic, you know, we run a, we run a hospitality home, so we have people through our house all the time. And we recently had an American family um, staying with us, and they were telling about staying with their Dutch friends that they stay with from time to time, Dutch, Christian Dutch friends. Um, and our, our guests were at first shocked by the matter-of-fact way that their Dutch Christian friends talked about sex, even with their young kids. Um, but perhaps, actually, they're onto something. Because the Netherlands has the lowest abortion rate in the world. And Dutch young people are less sexually active than North American young people. And at a later age than North American... I use North American stats because I've you know, lived and worked and ministered in North America. Um, so, uh, and that goes for Christians as well. Um, so, talk to your kids about sex. That can be awkward sometimes. For everybody, everybody involved, kids, parents, everybody, um, talk to your kids about sex, and, and get past just say no as well. Talk about you know strategies and you know all kinds of stuff. Talk about it because the research shows that when you talk with young people about sex and encourage them to take responsibility for their own choices, they don't have sex. <laughs> so anyway. Verse three, <laughs> the husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. Now, I started off saying that marriage is supposed to be a relationship of mutual care. I'm not saying that because that's a cultural value in my home culture. I'm saying that because the Bible says that. 
Now, the idea that wives had a marital duty to their husbands is pretty commonplace all over the world. The idea that the husband has a duty towards his wife is much less common. But it's definitely in Scripture. See, although the Old Testament doesn't actually encourage men to take multiple wives, because none of the stories turn out well, um, it does address the rights of multiple wives. Exodus 21.10, it says, If a husband marries another woman, he must not deprive the first one of her food, clothing, and marital rights. Her rights to food, clothing, and yes, marital rights does mean sex. Her rights are reflected in his duty to provide those things. See, it's all very well to talk about people having rights, but it's just, you know, empty air unless those rights are reflected in somebody else's duty. That's the way rights work. By the way, not fulfilling those rights were grounds for divorce under Jewish law. And I was reading a while ago a book about this topic, and apparently one of the, you know, the major reason why women, so Jewish women sued for, for divorce in the first century was because their husbands weren't fulfilling their marital responsibility in the bedroom. There you go. Paul goes on. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. Nothing unusual there, right, ladies? Um, that's been the norm for most of humanity for most of history. But then Paul goes on to say something that must have sounded absolutely outlandish to the Corinthians. He says, in the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. I can just see the Corinthian men scratching their heads and going, say what? I mean, this is a society where the male head of household had absolute authority over the lives, bodies, everything of the entire family. And Paul is telling these guys that they don't have exclusive rights over their own bodies. They have to yield them to their wives. Of course, it wasn't any use to the wives that they had to yield their bodies to the husbands. That was, you know, expected. Paul is talking about sexuality here. But the principle goes beyond that. One of the ways that Paul talks about salvation is to say that we no longer belong to ourselves. We've been bought with a price and we belong to God. In fact, he says that at the end of this passage in verse 24. And he calls us to live in ways that reflect that reality. In Philippians 2, he talks about the way that Christ came down from heaven and humbled himself so that we might be saved. And he says, that's our model for how we live now, serving each other in the church. And he carries that parallel into marriage because God has drawn us because God has drawn us into his covenant of life. We no longer belong to ourselves. We belong to God. And when we enter into the covenant of marriage with another person, we no longer belong to ourselves. We belong to each other. That doesn't mean we lose our identity and individuality. Paul assumes that we have rights over our own bodies. What he's saying is that when we marry, we yield those rights to our spouse. They yield their rights to us. Mutuality. And I suspect a major reason for failure, the number of marriages that fail 
these days, particularly in Western countries, is a focus on individual rights. And the individual and the individual rights, marriage only works when two people mutually give up their rights and choose to serve one another. So as a pastor, I've officiated all, a number of weddings, um, and you hear all kinds of things in the speeches at the reception afterwards. Um, some speeches are funny. Some are embarrassing. Some are, some are just plain soppy. Uh, some are profound. One of the best statements I ever heard from a father of a bride was at one wedding where he, he said, you know, lots of people will tell you marriage is a 50-50 you know, everybody, you, you, it's 50-50. You have to both get involved in it. He says, that's not the way it works. Marriage only um, doesn't work when it's 50-50 give and take. It only works when it's 100% give and give on both sides. I've never forgotten that. And when I, when I was pastoring in Canada, I had a wonderful church administrator, um, taught me a great deal of what it means to be a pastor. And she would refer to her husband as, he who shares my life which really, I think, captures that whole sense of mutuality of a married couple sharing life together. Marriage is supposed to be a mutual partnership of self-sacrificial love, life, love, not a battle to get the better of your spouse, not an opportunity to get your own way at the expense of your spouse. As Paul says, we're supposed to be trying to find ways to please each other, in all kinds of ways, not just sexually. Remember one time when I was traveling with our regional director uh, on the road between Pakistan up into Kabul and Afghanistan. He turns to me and says, Robin, tell me, what is Maryland like? And I was appalled to realize I'd been married for over a decade and couldn't really answer that question. Um, I've worked on that since. I know she likes flowers and long walks. Um, she likes it when I sit and watch figure skating with her. That's a Canadian thing. I'm sure it is. She loves the ballet, which is good because I love the ballet too. And no matter what's on the menu, she'll order chicken. But I suspect she still knows more about me than I know about her. So work on knowing your spouse. It's really important. If you need help with that, there's a really good book called Love, Five Love Languages by Gary Chapman. I encourage you to get that and read it. Help you understand each other. So, so that's Paul's basic position on sex and marriage. It's rooted thoroughly in the Old Testament scripture. Sex is good. It's one of the good things that God created in, in the garden. But the only safe place for it is in a faithful married relationship between a man and a woman where each seeks to serve the other self-sacrificially just like Jesus laid down his life for the church. That's the principle. How does it work? Well, Paul has some pretty explicit directions here. He says, don't deprive each other. Remember, some Christians were saying it's best for everybody to abstain, including husbands and wives. Not smart, says Paul. Do not deprive each other except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Husbands and wives who are pleasing one, one another. There's no room for manipulating your partner through withholding sex. 
if you're going to abstain for one reason or another, you can't make that decision by yourself because you're not the only person involved in the equation. What about those who are single again? That's something I actually believe Paul knew about from personal experience. In verse 8, he says, Now, to the unmarried and the widows, I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I do. Something that you can't see in English, but is in Greek, is that unmarried is masculine and widow, obviously, is, fe- is feminine. Paul uses that word unmarried again in verses 11 and 34. In both cases, it refers to somebody who was previously married. In verse 11, it's someone who's divorced. And in verse 34, it's used in contrast to virgins who have not been married. And Paul says, it is good for the unmarried to to stay unmarried as I do. He includes himself in the group of people who were previously married, but are now single. In verse 7, he says, I wish that all of you were as I am, but each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. Paul was single at the time he wrote this, and we'll look at his reasons for preferring singleness next week. But either way, he makes it clear that both marriage and singleness are gifts from God. Neither is better than the other. So this common image you have of Paul as this crusty old bachelor telling married couples how to live is actually very unlikely. From, the verses, from these verses, we can see he was probably a widower, maybe even divorced. I sometimes wonder if Paul's um, comment in um, Timothy about wives being kept safe through childbirth, which is what that verse is about. It's not about being saved by giving birth. It's being not dying in childbirth. Um, may reflect the fact that he was married and lost his wife in childbirth, which was... Very, very common in the first century, and is still very, very common in all kinds of places, including Afghanistan. We don't know that. That's, that's just a conjecture on my part. Another line comes of argument for that comes from Philippians, where he describes himself as a leader amongst the Pharisees. That would be next to impossible if he wasn't married. And we, so what we need to realize is this whole section, this whole section is addressed to people who have sexual experience. That's obvious when he's talking to married people, but also when he's talking to widows and those that he calls unmarried. Men who are either widowed or divorced. These are people who were once married and now they're alone again. And Paul's advice in verse 9 is, if you can manage being alone, stay that way. But if you miss that intimacy and you're aching for someone in your life, then go ahead and find someone new. What's important is that you be at peace with your choice, either to stay single or to remarry. What about divorce? I'm running a little bit late here, but we don't have a church coming in after us, so I'm going to keep going. That's okay with you guys. What about divorce? Um, We need to realize that divorce was even more rampant in the first century than it is now. Under Roman law, which applied in Corinth, to divorce his wife, a man only had to say, to us re tibi habeto, get yourself your things. And she was gone. Seneca, who wrote about the same time as Paul was writing, says that many women reckon their years by the number of their husbands. Of course, only men could initiate divorce. 
wives could leave their husbands, but without a divorce, they were still legally married. Which is why Paul says if a, if a wife leaves her husband, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. If she's not divorced, she's not free to pursue another relationship, which was the whole point of divorce. In fact, to be legal, Jewish certificates of divorce had to include the line, she may marry anyone she wishes to make it legal. And I, Paul, I think Paul actually quotes that, that, that very line in verse 39. He actually says that she may marry anyone she, she wishes. She's talk, he's talking about widows at that point. But the line is from a Jewish certificate of divorce. And I think the church has caused a lot of unnecessary pain over the centuries by insisting that divorced people cannot remarry. Since the whole, that's the whole point of divorce in scripture in the first place. I won't go into that anymore uh, right now. I do have a message. I preached on that when I was pastoring in Canada. If you want to explore that more, come and ask me. I'll give you a link to it. Um, what about unbelieving spouses? Paul says, don't initiate the breakup of the marriage. But if the unbelieving partner leaves, you can let them go. But the goal is always that you should be serving your spouse as Christ serves the church, influencing them for good. It can be really messy. My sister came to our wedding, spent a couple of weeks in Christian community in Amsterdam, and came to the Lord. Went back to, to Scotland, and her husband left her. And that was the beginning of some you know, very rough times for her. We have a woman, we have a friend in Canada, uh, was working with an, uh, a, working a, a workers' agency in India, uh, working amongst Hindus, and her husband became a Muslim. She stayed with him for years, partly because he wanted her to be the one to leave, and she wasn't going to do that. Eventually, they divorced, and she remarried. The Christian wives of Muslim men often lead them to faith. It doesn't work so, much, so well the other way. I'm not sure why that is, but statistically, it's much more likely for a Christian wife to lead a, a Muslim man to faith than it, is for a, than it is for a Christian husband to lead a Muslim wife to faith. Then there's that strange statement about children. Otherwise, your children would be unclean as it is they are holy. Now, children are often dirty, but that's not what this is about. Um, <laughs> because unclean doesn't mean dirty. It's a technical word. It means the opposite of holy, dedicated to God. What Paul's saying, I think, is that as long as the kids are under your care, they're exposed to the things of God. If the marriage breaks down and the children go to be with the unbelieving spouse, then they are separated from the influence of the gospel. So, yeah, staying together for the sake of the children is not just, you know, good biblically. Statistically, it also seems to, from what, from what I've read on this, actually not be a bad idea. So what are some of the takeaways from this passage? Well, first of all, marriage is intended to be a relationship of mutual care and service. Learn what it is that makes your spouse tick so you can love them better. 
If you need help with that, Gary Chapman's book on the five languages is a great place to start. If you find yourself single again, whether through divorce or death, and you can manage singleness, Paul's advice is to stay that way. You have much greater freedom. You're much more able to to do all kinds of things because you're a free agent. You no longer have to consider somebody else's needs and concerns. But if you long for companionship and intimacy, then be, be actively asking God to lead you to someone else. And finally, if you're in a marriage to someone who doesn't know God, then do your best to serve them as Christ would. Be a blessing to them. Be a blessing to, their, to your children if you have children. And pray for them. Because who knows what God might do? Let's pray, shall we? Lord Jesus, we thank you for practical advice from Scripture. Lord, we thank you that Paul doesn't shy away from giving us advice and direction about how to manage our lives. The advice is one thing, Lord. The direction is one thing. We pray for the grace to be obedient to what your word teaches. To be good husbands and wives to each other. To, um, to respect those who are single and have chosen to be that way and are following you in that state. And not always be trying to hook them up with somebody. Lord, thank you that you call each of us to a particular way of life. And that's unique for each one of us. Help us, Lord, to be faithful to you, to walk in purity, to love one another as you love us. In your name we pray. Amen.